Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Carving the Divine TV. My name is Yujiro Seki, and I'm a director, writer, and the producer of the documentary Carving the Divine. Carving the Divine is about the Buddhist sculptors of Japan, and the Buddhist sculpting has a 1,400 years of tradition in Japan. And my documentary is about the modern day bushi who make those statues. So, uh, but before uh, I present my documentary in the world, uh, I thought it would be a really good idea to present information about the Buddhism and the history of the Buddhism so that when you guys finally watch my documentary, uh, you guys can uh, enjoy it at maximum value. So, uh, without further ado, I have my scholar here, and uh, he is one of the most intelligent people that I met in my life. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, hear what he has to say every week. So, uh, welcome, uh, Michael Jordan Van Houtenbelt. Thank you so much for having me back, Yujiro. Um, I'm ready and excited to talk about the topic you've proposed to me today. Um, it's not going to be short, but it is going to be simple. <laughs> okay, we'll count all that. So, uh, yeah, let's dive into it if this is a, a very difficult topic. So, uh, I was always wondering. So, Buddhism uh, made its way from uh, uh, India, China to Japan. At least uh, I'm talking about Mahayana, uh, Mahayana sense. But as uh, uh, Buddhism travels through, I think uh, Buddhism had some conflict with the traditional uh, belief systems uh, everywhere. And uh, uh, surprisingly, Buddhism always found a way to reconcile uh, with uh, the traditional belief system and uh, uh, meld into uh, the culture they're traveling to. So I think China is also one of the examples because Chinese had a traditional value systems such as Confucianism and Taoism. Uh, so my question to you, Michael, is uh, how did Buddhism reconcile with uh, these traditional values? And also tell us a little bit about uh, the history of Chinese Buddhism, please. Okay, so this is a very, very large topic. So I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. I'm only going to touch on the earliest highlights. Um, so Buddhism in China is referred to as continental Buddhism. So the Buddhism that you find in India and in China and in Korea is called continental because that's all part of continental Asia. Um, when you talk about Buddhism in Japan, it's referred to just Japanese uh, when you're reading in textbooks. Now, there was a lot of uh, cultural exchange going on between China and Japan. And so you'll see a lot of inspiration of, say, Tang Dynasty values on Nara period Japanese art. Now, to talk about Chinese Buddhism or Buddhism in Chinese history, I think, and I want to talk about one of my favorite quotes. It's an old quote that refers to probably the founding of Buddhism in China. Um, there is an idea that China either came overland into the north or by maritime into the south. But the most popular stories talk about Buddhism coming into China around the first century CE. Um, and this would be during the rule of the Emperor Ming of Han. Um, Han is, of course, 
how people refer to the to China at that time. So the quote that I want to read comes out of a record, historical record, talking about this emperor. So in the olden days, Emperor Ming saw in the dream, saw in a dream, a god whose body had the brilliance of the sun and who flew before his palace, and he rejoiced exceedingly at this. The next day he asked his officials, what god is this? The scholar of Fu Yi said, your subject has heard it said that in India there is somebody who has attained enlightenment and who is called the Buddha. He flies in the air, his body has the brilliance of the sun, and this must be that god. And so it's based on this dream, allegedly, that the Emperor Ming sent men over to inquire about this Buddha, about this historical figure that had achieved enlightenment. And so these two Chinese monks, they and these envoys and these ambassadors went out to India to search out this god, to search out this historical figure. And what they did is they couldn't find the figure at all because the historical Buddha had been dead for about five centuries at that point. But instead, they found these sutras, and they brought these sutras back on horseback. And along with these sutras, there were two Indian Buddhist monks who joined them, one by the name of Dharmaratna, and the other one by the name Kashyapa. And Kashyapa Matanga was his full name. And Kashyapa is a reference back to one of the Buddha's closest disciples. Now, there was about, mm, I would say about 300 years later, there was a war where China went into along the Silk Road and they captured a city that was predominantly Buddhist people. And this kingdom was known as Kucha. So, Along with the people that had been captured at Kucha, there was an Indian monk named Kumarajaiva. And Kumarajaiva, he actually became one of the grand masters, one of the grand translators of the Indian scriptures of the Indian Buddhist sutras into Chinese so that the Chinese people could understand it. This happened around the 5th century CE. Following that, another 300 years later, in the 8th century CE, there were three monks named Shubhakarashima, Vajra Bodhi, and Amaga Vajra. And these are the three Indian monks who are most closely affiliated with esoteric Buddhism, you know, growing and becoming a popular form of Buddhism in China in between 716 and 720 CE. Then in the Tang Dynasty, there was a great cataclysm. Um, the emperor and the ruling bodies at the time, they felt that Buddhism, because it was a foreign religion and not local like Taoism and Confucianism, that it should be eradicated. And so there was this gigantic persecution of Chinese Buddhism figures of the sculptures, of the art, of the temples. There were burning down of places of worship. There was the persecution of monks themselves and of people that practiced Chinese Buddhism simply because it was considered to be a foreign import. And the Chinese government at the time wanted to make sure that things stayed as local as possible. So when was that? 
Tang Dynasty? So that would have been around the middle of the ninth century. Okay. So around around 845, 848 CE. Great, great. And so there's a quote that is affiliated with this whole movement by an 8th century writer named Han Yu. And Han Yu wrote, Buddha was a man of the barbarians who did not speak the language of China and who wore the clothes of a different fashion. His sayings do not concern the ways of Chinese ancient kings, nor did his manner of dress conform to their laws. He understood neither the duties that binds sovereign and subject, nor the affections of father and son. And you can see reflected in that quote, the ideas of Confucianism and Taoism. Mm. Now, Buddhist ideology during the Song Dynasty, the Song Dynasty went from about 960 to 1279 in China. That is when you start to see a merging of Confucianist ideas and Taoist ideas with Buddhism. And this is because Buddhism made use of Chinese philosophical terms that you would have found in Confucianism and Taoism in the native thoughts, the native philosophies of China. So because there is a carryover, because there is a shared vocabulary between these three religions, these three ideologies, that's when you start to see them meld and they sort of become syncretized. Wow. So that was a, like a, when was that year about? Uh, so that would have been during the Song Dynasty. Um, so most likely during the later Song Dynasty, you would really see a, you know, uh, um, a fluid merging of these ideas. And that would have been probably around the 13th century. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, that's cool. I think that's uh, uh, more than uh, we can handle. Uh, I think so. <laughs> it's a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. I think that was a very concise and uh, yeah, it was a very difficult topic. So I'm always impressed how you can handle uh, such a difficult topic into a smaller bite. And, uh, you know, thank you. Appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the chance. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, uh, what's going on in your world again? Well, um, I spent a really nice uh, week with my parents. Um, they, it, it was really nice to just kind of kick back and relax. I want to remind everybody that on May 1st, I will be speaking at the Nibe Foundation um, in West LA. I'll be speaking on strange Buddhist sculptures found all the way across Japan. Um, it is sculptures that you would only find one or two of in the entire country. Um, I also am excited to once again tell everybody that I am writing for a website called BuddhistDoor.net. And it is going to be a monthly column all about the iconography of Buddhist art. Great. I can't wait to uh, finally read it. Well if, if you, well, if you do want to read it, the link is going to be down below. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. It's already there, I guess. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> great, great. So if you guys think this information is useful, make sure to subscribe my YouTube channel, uh, follow me on my Twitter and Instagram, and like my Facebook for sure, because that's how we do it in the 21st century. Yes, it is. That's right. So I'll talk to you soon, Michael. Talk to you soon. Take care.